If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Hopeful Hints, hosted by Dr. Tara, guides and supports those on the often challenging and isolating journey of women's health concerns and infertility. There's a particularly powerful episode that you should check out called All Things Endometriosis, which dives deep into understanding the condition to help the many women who suffer from endometriosis and have no idea they have it, and healthcare providers who are uneducated about it, making the diagnosis process so difficult. Check out Hopeful Hints on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to Highway to Health. I'm Jeremy Quinby. How are you, my friends? Hope you're well. This is episode 53 of the podcast, and if this is your first time listening to the show, I want to welcome you. Highway to Health is a place for you to explore and define what health looks like to you. For most of us, the idea of health has been defined by our culture, and the term healthcare is now something that many of us see in a negative light. It is my hope that through the content and conversations you get here, you become more empowered and engaged, not just in your own personal well-being, but also in your communities and the environments in which you spend your time. I have Terry Quant of Dreambox here to share her insights today. As an expert in the field of experiential design, as well as human-centered and trauma-informed approaches to design. She'll be up here in a couple of minutes. Uh, first, I want to read you an email real quickly that I got from someone about my conversation with uh, Dr. Bill Manahan. It says, Jeremy, I'm so impressed with your ability to engage not only your guests, but also to promote this public dialogue. I especially loved your conversation with Bill, whom I've known for nearly 20 years. He, epitomi he epitomizes everything your podcast is about. I happen to know a lot about what Bill did behind the scenes, often putting his reputation on the line to help holistic medicine become more accepted in the mainstream. I hope more people in healthcare can hear this one uh, and understand the arc of traditional care in this country, where we were, where we've failed, and how to improve it. I'm going to share this one and tell more people about this podcast. Thank you, CC. I want to thank you, CC, for this insight. And and you know, I just met Bill. Uh, this past year. And so I'm, I'm just starting to scratch the surface of understanding the scope of what he's done to promote a more holistic approach in all fields of care. And I especially appreciate you sharing episodes as well, because this is really how we get the word out and uh, to, you know, get someone like Bill's story out there that can inspire us all, uh, especially those of us who have chosen a career in, in, in promoting well-being in one way or another and have a true calling to help improve our communities. And on that note, if you feel this podcast has been of value to your life, if you've been influenced or inspired or informed in any way, you can become a supporter of this project for as little as $1 a month. You just have to go to patreon.com forward slash highway to health. And uh, if you listen every week, 5 to $10 a month ensures that we can keep putting these, these episodes out regularly and develop new content for you. And I promise to keep bringing you the same amazing resources and guests that you've been getting here for the last three years. And if you'd like to become more engaged with the happenings around this project, you can check out highwaydehealthpodcast.com or our Instagram and Facebook pages for Highway to Health Podcast. And if you have a guest that you think I should have a conversation with, send me an email through the contact form on the website. So this conversation today gets to the heart of something that I've been thinking about a lot over the last few years, which is that our health is dependent on a number of factors and that the most important of them is probably our environment and the atmosphere, both physically and culturally in which we spend our time. And Terry Quant is the director of an innovation and experience design studio within RSP Architects called Dreambox. 
Her passion for human-centered design has pushed her into an emerging field of trauma-centered design, giving more thoughtful consideration to the stories of the people who will be frequenting these spaces that she helps to design. And, you know, ultimately, this is a conversation about space. We are all here on a planet, in a neighborhood, in a building, in a room, in a body that takes up space, spaces and structures between ourselves and the outdoors, between ourselves and other living creatures. It's also about flow, how we move our physical selves through these spaces, how we affect and are affected by these spaces and each other. I really hope you enjoy my conversation here with Terry Quant. I'm curious to sort of understand from a design perspective and from, you know, the way you think about spaces and the way that they sort of affect us, you know, in terms of our, our sense of, of being in, in these places. I think that's the thing that I'm most interested in. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I figured that's why I wanted to do this. Yeah. Did you go into school right away for for design? You have kind of an art background too, if I'm not mistaken, right? I do. I I have. um, I studied undergrad design, um, both graphic design and architecture. Mm. And um, later, I went back to grad school and I continued to study design, but I applied it in a different way. I became a public artist and uh, did a master's degree in furniture design. Um, my initial desire doing architecture with graphic design was to um, to really get into exhibit design, very uh-huh. intimate scale design. I never had an interest in doing, I'll say, larger architectural work. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. And um, so I've always been interested in in how people interact with space and and how to engage them in it, yeah. actually. It's, it's interesting as as a musician, my younger years, it's it's the same it's the same thing really when mm-hmm. you're when, when you're dealing with music notes and about how sort of people respond to their different variations and, and rhythms and stuff. It's it's all it, the 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 more involved I got in music, the more I realized space was like the, the most important part. Yeah, well, and if you use that analogy, it's like. Really, music and and spaces are essentially compositions that are trying to serve a particular purpose. Yeah. Um, so you know, I think this is some fresh off of a site visit, so I'm, I'm going to yeah. use yeah, that yeah. as an example. <laughs> I mean, I was basically walking in the shoes of people who might be either going through um, a divorce court situation or who may have an order of protection against someone. Uh There may be domestic violence involved, but it's a family court. And the idea was for me to get an understanding of what they actually, the spaces they pass through and the actual process that they pass through. So from a composition standpoint, when you're thinking about music, it's all of the things, you know, it's yeah, a very it's sensorial kind of an experience. You have sounds, you have people calling out people's names, you have a kind of an institutional architecture that harkens, you know, to the experience of being at the DMV. And yet yeah. you're there for one of the most probably painful family yeah. experiences um, that you will have. And to some degree, perhaps even traumatic. So, so what's their thinking? What do, how, how do they kind of engage you in this? Are, are, they, are they thinking about things on these lines? or? 
Well, yeah, interestingly, a judge I know called me up and said, you know, I know you do experiential design and we are going to be going through a process of a move and a renovation. And I would really like to see if we can get an experiential approach to the architecture as well Mm -hmm. as a trauma-informed design approach. So tell me about about trauma-informed design. That's really... A, a term I, I know it. You know we we have some of these terms in, in terms of psych, so I'm sure it's very similar. It is. I mean, um, there are some emerging, I'll say, best practices around that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's a fairly um, new field to design as an approach. There's there's been evidence based design, which is yeah, yeah. really you know clearly about the efficacy of a space and performing in the ways in which we design it to. But then there are other ways that we can measure spatial design and experiences of space, Um, one of which is the emotional rational, you know, understanding how someone might be coming in, what, what their trauma may limit in them in terms of their capacity to understand instructions. Uh You know, all of those things are really significant. And the more that we experience, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say kind of a traumatic world, um, you know, culturally, um, there are some organizations that have even positioned the United States, for example, as a, as a country of survivors, yeah. because there are so many day-to-day traumas that we experience in the news, for example, mm-hmm. uh, about violence. The world is in trauma, you know, to some degree too. So what and, and those... we've, and we've as a as a nation, we've capitalized on this in terms of media, in terms of, I mean, even going back, I I think about this a lot, just in terms of having children. I grew up in the '70s. I was born in 1970. So if I, you know, if you think about it, some of the stuff that happened during that time period, from you know some of the you know some of the stuff that was like post Vietnam into the, you know, what became like the slasher type films. I mean, it's, it's kind of amazing what we went through cinematically and that, that stuff doesn't quite exist the same way anymore. It almost doesn't affect us. It's, we've been desensitized, but at that point, you know, to see this, this stuff magnified on a screen and with the sound that was, you know, starting to become available in theaters, it was like a huge experience to go in and, and into these movie theaters and do this. And, and it used to be a big deal. I mean, I remember going into some of these places. I don't think most of them exist anymore, but there were these like giant, you know, auditorium structures with, you know, velvet curtains and <laughs> all these things. And it really was, you were going there to sort of like go, go have an experience in this place. Right. Right. And And now even those places are not necessarily perceived as safe. Right. It's it's crazy, isn't it? And, you know, so there there's a really interesting, I'm going to say, differentiation, you know, between safety and security. And I think that what we've started to do is build very secure places, Mm. but they don't necessarily address the psychological safety needs that people have, especially people who have been through any kind of trauma and you know I'm kind of referring you know obviously without stating it to gun related yeah. uh, traumas and violence um, but you know those things are starting to inform you know there are questions that are coming up as kids you know you're talking about taking a trip with your daughter kids going back to school you know thinking about these things understanding that this is in sort of the, the cultural psyche and how do we how do we address that um, from a design perspective mm-hmm very holistically, you know, that, 
it's a really big nut to crack. Yeah. And I think it's really important. Um, there are some people who are mentors to me who have shared some data, and I don't want to get it wrong, so I'm not going to share yeah, a number, yeah. but it's an extraordinary percentage of students going into the Minneapolis public schools, for example, with trauma, who have experienced some version of tra trauma. Maybe that is from a divorce or maybe a domestic violence situation, mm -hmm. or maybe it's something else entirely. Um, maybe it was a personal health experience that was traumatic mm -hmm. or a car accident. Mm -hmm. So y you never know, you know what people are bringing into the room. Um, so I think the basic idea behind trauma-informed design is to try to figure out how to soften that um, and not, um, you know, I, I think one of the things that I'm doing right now is I'm, I'm realizing as an experienced designer, we have to pay attention to contrast. So for example, if someone's bringing in trauma, you know, what, what is the opposite of that? The ability to probably to access joy, you know, right. and silliness and yeah. frivolity yeah. <laughs> and laughter yeah. You know, um, instead of being frozen, you're right. open. To have some kind of freedom within that space, right? Right, right. So what, 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 what do you do in terms of like, say, you know, from, a, from, from the design perspective, in terms of like the space, the lines, the materials, what, what kinds of things do you, do you kind of take into consideration then to, to try to change that experience of, of you know, create safety or freedom or that kind of thing in a, in a space? Well, um, we were working on a project for a local hospital, and it was very, it was very much about this topic of safety and security. Like, how do you actually create a sense um, when you're in this waiting area that it's secure mm -hmm. um, and safe? And those are very different things. Um, and it was interesting because you know we really learned a lot in that process. Sight lines are really important. Being able yeah, to actually yeah. see. Um, not not just across the space and be able to kind of see other people, but to be seen as well. Um, interestingly, in this particular environment, a security officer was positioned behind um, not only a, a hard wall, but a bulletproof glass um, sort of cage, essentially. And so they were not visible to the people who were part of this environment. And... Um, they weren't able to also see everybody because, you know, their sight lines weren't clear. Yeah. So visibility is huge. You know, a sense of audio control, you know, noise, yeah. um, acoustics, um, certainly smells have a huge impact on a sense of safety. It's probably one of our strongest senses for giving us a trigger mm. that something is safe or not. I mean, that's actually... You know, the smells and the kind of core emotions that we are relating to um, as human beings being roughly, I mean, psychologists would say it's about six core human emotions. And, for example, one of them directly relates to smell. It's mm. disgust. So disgust is really there, so we don't eat bad food, right? right, right. I mean, it's, an, right. it's a human emotion that helps us to survive, yes. you know, and not have some horrible, you know, gut-wrenching <laughs> food poisoning. Right, right. Right? So, um... Or, or get together with the wrong partner. Oh, well, exactly. <laughs> I mean, pheromones matter. Right, right. <laughs> totally. So, so how do you... So t tell me about that in terms of design. Like, so what do you do? Are you, t are you talking about things that you put into the space, into the air? Like, what, what, how, do, how do you do that? Well, I mean, in, in an ideal situation, um, first of all, there'd be a lot of nature. Yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> You know, and there'd be um, access to the out, out of doors 
um, green. And so a, a lot of what we can get sensorially um, from the natural world would really help us yeah. to calm ourselves and be, you know, more centered in whatever space we're in. Um, so it's interesting because I went to hear a talk by a doctor who um, is prescribing parks. Um, yeah. And um, it's just brilliant work. And he's got a network of over 600 prescribers now across the country who are actually having really great success with, um, you know, I, I don't know exactly what the medical term is, but it's sort of like compliance. You know, you're you're willing to follow through on the prescription that you've been given. Mm-hmm. So let's say, you know, you get a, a amoxicillin prescription and you have to take that twice a day right, for right, gotcha. 10 days. Yeah. Well, the the effectiveness is incredible because they're able to track people actually checking into parks and then that information Mm -hmm. is brought back to you know the doctors and they're able to see if people are actually going to the parks they make the prescriptions very realistic Mm -hmm. um they like specific time periods they want them there or or specific places or like where do you live you know do you live what do you like to do in a park yeah you know how far away is a park and he actually kind of breaks it out to like there are day-to-day parks and i have one in my neighborhood it's matthews park yeah so i run through there in the morning and that's you know my green experience um so uh, what do you like to do? Maybe it's walk your dog or, you know, be out with your kids playing ball and soccer. You know, you can you can ride the horse in the direction it's going, essentially, and right. sort of see what people are already willing to do or, you know, have enjoyed in the past. So, you know, it, the green piece for me is really huge because I've been having this opportunity to work more closely with um, not only the architects in my firm, but also landscape architects in various firms, and seeing the impact of you know how this is such a healthful environment. So it brings your stress levels down and your cortisol. So if we can Im- improve that indoor environment to include some of these elements that will literally naturally improve your health and well-being without you doing anything. Right? So, so are, are there are there a list of things that you always try to kind of blend into a space in terms of light, green, air movement, sight lines? Is, is that what you kind of, there, there are, is, is there kind of a, a specific rule that you, that you follow? Well, there, um, there actually are well-building standards, oh. you know, and they're very specific and scientifically based. So you, for example, could design a space to understand, you know, what the air circulation is and improve air quality for everyone who's in it. So those are things that we can actually do with building sciences and, you know, the mechanicals that go into buildings. Access to daylight is clearly one of those things that Mm -hmm. is so important. Um, And unfortunately, a lot of people don't have that in their work environments. And just even being able, I mean, one of the seminal studies around health and healing was I think in the 60s about you know comparing two two patients in a hospital one who was looking out the window at a brick wall yeah. and the other one who had a beautiful view yeah. and the one who had the beautiful view required less pain medication and got out of the hospital <laughs> faster yeah, yeah. so you know the, these are in some ways kind of no-brainer design tools you know uh, that we provide these opportunities for people and it's really surprising how how little those come into play in certain kinds of environments. 
Like, for example, hospital campuses are usually these kind of amalgams of buildings that sort of build one after another when a new clinic is needed. And the outdoor spaces are usually the last ones that are addressed from a master planning perspective or from a kind of a, I'm, I'm going to say a health and healing standpoint, that mm-hmm. it's not just the indoor spaces that are healing people, right? Right. And and that and transitional spaces, too. I, I, I'm, I'm guessing those also probably get left a little bit to the end, right? Well, transitional spaces, you know, we we call that circulation in in architecture. Yeah, that I, makes sense. I think what's interesting is that circulation can be blocked, you know, yeah. um, just as like it the is veins in the body. and the arteries yeah. of the buildings, right? Absolutely. So, you know, it's interesting that when there's clear circulation and actually fewer messages, people feel more comfortable, more oriented, more in control. Um, and and I, I don't know if you're talking about literal hallway transition spaces, but that's you know kind or, of or I, or even entry spaces or oh yeah I mean, definitely other, thresholds all, yeah. or between if there is an outdoor space or a parking space or whatever like we there's there th- those the, we don't even probably we're, we're unaware of the impact of those kinds of things. I mean you're you're very aware of it. <laughs> Most of us are unaware of the impact that those kinds of spaces have as we're going in, you know, if we're going into a building that's sort of like closed and you can't see what's past those doors, you could have anxiety, right? That's Absolutely. one of those the kind of things that people go through. And so, you, so you're, you're considering those kinds of pieces in your design, I, I'm guessing. Absolutely. And I think if anything, because, you know, for example, healthcare environments and even higher education environments have, have been built, you know, in an additive fashion over right. time, yeah. they end up with like way too much signage. <laughs> You know, it's like a subtractive gardening process. Like, what do you really need to say <laughs> right, here? Right, right. Um, and, you know, people would just think, like, the answer is put a sign on it, you know. And it's probably, <laughs> it just might become clutter, you know, yeah. visual clutter. That's really interesting. So so can we go, let's go back to, like, how you how you ended up in, in this field in the first place. So you So you kind of... You, you, what were you, what were you starting out? So after you started got into like furniture design, where, where did what led you into kind of taking things to a larger scale? Well, it, yeah, it's interesting. Um, when I got out of grad school, I was doing a lot of public art, and that's a great it's a great habit, but you have to support it with other things. <laughs> I know too well. Yeah, so you know, I was I was really enjoying doing the work that I was doing and I have had some phenomenal opportunities to do projects around the Twin Cities. Um, Sculptural work yeah. or mm-hmm. furniture or what, 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 it, what was it? Yeah, okay. functional. Yeah, I would say some of it's functional art furniture, some of it's sculptural. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and at the same time, I was also doing several exhibit. I was leading some exhibit designs for the Science Museum in St. Paul. And so I'd kind of gone back to doing this first love of mine, which is experiences that are interesting and engaging and, you know, help connect people to each other and, you know, mm-hmm. to information. Um, and um, when I was working on that, I actually met someone who was doing consulting in the experience design space. And I was like, whoa, what is that? Mm. And this was actually... About 20 years ago. Okay. So um, it was a kind of an emerging field. It, at the time, it was really primarily being deployed as a tool to attract 
customers. So it wasn't being used that much in healthcare spaces or other kinds of practices. Um, but I found out more about it. I ended up working with this firm. And so um, we did experience designs based on some pretty deep dives of research for a, a number of consumer-based kinds of clients, like in the banking industry and retail, but also in the healthcare space. Hmm. So, um, so I continued doing all three of those things. I was doing kind of public art and um, exhibit design and experience design. And, and what was interesting to me was that experience design was kind of basing itself on a lot of the design types of research that I had been doing in, ex in exhibits. So in other words, we would proto prototype something, mm -hmm. and we would test it, and we would watch people, and we'd see if they did things in the order that we wanted them to do them, because some of these processes were really complex. We, we designed a cell lab exhibit, for example, at the Science Museum, and we needed to have people not only glove and gown and put goggles on, but enjoy themselves in the process <laughs> right, right. and want to do it again, yeah. you know, ultimately create a joyful, interesting experience that they found, um, you know, engaging and fun, you know, not, yeah. not difficult. So um, we had, I'll say, micro-designed a lot of those kinds of moments in the architecture of these exhibit spaces. And so I was really fascinated with other ways that people were doing this. And um, so doing experience design for a number of years as a consultant, um, we did research projects where we would you know, I like to call it kind of hacking into people's hearts and minds. Yeah, yeah. Um, we did extensive qualitative research interview type research, um, sometimes hours long, you know, to really understand what the really base needs were for a particular, not a, po a population or a demographic, but m more consistently across all. Like, what are the common elements that are human? You know, what are the things that are common to humanity in general, even maybe cross-cultural. There are some tenets, if you will, yeah. around connection. Um, not all, though. You know, for example, our whole notion of grief is very different than it is in other cultures. Oh, yeah, for right? sure. So, yeah. you, you know, and in, and in particular, there was one um, experience design project that was really, really interesting to me. It was an emergency room design in a hospital on the East Coast. And it was um, it was fascinating because when we really started looking at that whole experience, we had to be honest with ourselves, not every, not everybody leaves here, right? Mm -hmm. You know So if we're going to be holistic and we're going to create an experience design that addresses all of the experiences coming in here, including the person who's driving um, an ambulance, you know, or mm, yeah. the intake triage nurse, or the family member who loses someone, right? Yeah. So, um, and then those who, you know, are able to go on their way in the experience. But this was an architectural project. It was intended to inform the design of the space. Um, and we found some very, very interesting things in that process. It was really eye-opening. So I could see that by understanding some of the needs that people have, we can create environments to really support some of those more difficult moments. Like, for example, <laughs> the irony is that the metaphor that really helps in healthcare is movement. Mm -hmm. Keeping moving is a sign that we're well. Yes, yeah. 
I would agree. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of basic. <clears throat> it's um, it's, it's a, one of my basic tenets of my work in general. Yeah. And, and you know, and, and this has to do with all the systems of the body, too. You know, it's not mm-hmm. just moving your, you know, physical body in space, but actually the sort of, you know, movement, this peristaltic movement that goes on throughout the body in different ways, our digestive system, our lymphatic system, our circulatory system. I'm, it's one of the things I'm always thinking about when I can tell someone comes in and they're not well or they've been struggling or they haven't found answers to things. I'm thinking about all these different pieces together. So it's, it's We have a theme here. It's circulation. Yeah, yeah. It totally is. Yeah. I mean, um, so, I mean, one of the things that ironically we found through observation and, and interviews was that an emergency room experience for the most part is a series of stoppages. Oh, that's interesting. It you is. Know? So when you reframe that as, you know, a challenge, a design challenge to say, how do you actually create movement? in an environment where you have these forced waits. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of them is waiting to be seen by triage. Well, the next one is oh, waiting yeah, in a room. The next one is waiting for your x-ray. The next one's, you know. So there's like a series of stops and goes and stops. So understanding that from the human perspective, like how do you actually kind of create that sense of motion, motion and movement mm-hmm. even when there are going to necessarily be moments where you have to be still, Yeah. you know. MRI scan still. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was fascinating to me. We we utilized um, an approach to research that was innovated by Jerry Zaltman, who he was the director of the Consumer Mind Research at Harvard, and he created um, the Zaltman metaphor elicitation technique. It's a very in-depth interview. It's meant to unearth metaphoric language that we use in describing our experiences. Okay, so you yeah, can yeah. say, you know, and and we we use these every day in our common language, but we're not very aware of it. Yeah, so yeah. it's kind of a way to, you know, pull in some of the threads and understand what what might be going on behind um, the language that people use. Yeah, well, it's inter- I mean, it's it's fascinating because as part of my work. You've you've been on my table, so you know. Yeah. <laughs> but one of the things that's that we we study some archetypal you know bits of psychology. So we study Jung and we study um, psychosynthesis, which is Dr. Asagioli. He was one of Freud's proteges, and he kind of took in a slightly different perspective than than just having the mind be foremost. His was more that there's this kind of soulful, spiritual experience that is just existential that's actually leading the mind, you know, so that, so there's that, but a lot of it comes down to like, how do we draw the language out to understand what this person's experience is? And there are, there are, you know, common imagery things that, that you can kind of start to find over time. So, so how do you use in, in your field, how do you use this, this kind of thing? Well, um, we sometimes ask people to bring in images Hmm. to describe their experience, and then we ask them a lot of questions about it. So, um, you know, a a project um, that comes to mind actually is um, the Crescent Cove project that we worked on. Um, It's a children's hospice and respite center. Mm -hmm. And these are, you know, really different experiences. They're different you know, in our language, we'd call them customer pathways or user pathways. Right. So they're they're coming from different points. Um, 
you know, um, someone who is preparing to actually, you know, for the death of their child, you know, versus someone who's actually just needing some respite and some care for their child while they spend time with the rest of their family. Um, you know, that's kind of a more joyous experience potentially for everybody all around. Yeah. Um, but these things, you know, were happening all in the same building, yeah. you know, and by design. Um, and the one that we worked on here in Minnesota is the third one um, to be developed and designed and built in the in the country. Um, there are 50 of them in the UK, but we have, even though there are a certain number of, you know, child or infant deaths every year, for example, I think around 500 in Minnesota, mm-hmm. we don't have places for them if they are terminally ill. Um, they're only adult hospices. Mm-hmm. So this was there's a need for this kind of a facility. Oh, wow. um, and um, we uh, we asked people about their experiences and and you know, getting back to your original question, like how did you get at that? we we might ask them to bring in pictures and talk about th- their loved one. We also might ask them to bring in pictures to talk about what that experience was like, you know, or what some of the things are, and we were really focusing on their well-being in this research. So we were trying to say, what would help? What would have helped you, or will help you, mm-hmm. to thrive as an individual and a family in the context of this financially? Because that was a huge issue for yeah, a lot yeah. of these families. Um, emotionally, um, from a connection family standpoint, um, socially because most of these families, it turns out, are quite isolated mm-hmm. um, in their experiences. And so we, we probe on those questions. That's kind of the language we use. It seems a little harsh, but, yeah. it, you know, we, we keep asking until we understand, like, what those things were that were kind of missing in the experience yeah. or that could have been better. Um, and that contrast thing is where we get to the design. It's like, well, here's something that didn't work, or here's something that worked really well, yeah. and how do we enhance that? Um, but I think that contrast is a huge tool in design in general. We want you know, the window opening to show itself in the, in, in the wall form. We want to be able to navigate and create a legible space for people so they understand where they are. And that comes some, a lot of times from contrast when we're reading something, mm-hmm. like words on a page, literally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, it's the same with experience design, I think. Um, we're trying to locate the contrast, and sometimes that means that we do have to look at all aspects of that experience and from a lot of different points of view. I, and I don't know if I told you this, but I had... At a month in the hospital with my daughter, she had, um, she was, no. we figured out that she had a fever, a fever when she was 12 days old and turned out to be bacterial meningitis. Wow. So <clears throat> I, and I thought a lot about it just because I, I was there for a month and, you know, a month can be a long time in a hospital. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. and, and it's interesting because when you, when you were just talking earlier about the sort of stop, stoppage points mm-hmm. and, and movement, you know, we, 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 we were lucky that our, our pediatrician did work at this hospital. This is New York Presbyterian, which is kind of the place to go in New York. And so <clears throat> she, because she had done some teaching there and she was actually going to be there, you know, she stopped in at different points while we were there. But she, she called ahead, got us a room. The room was ready for us when we got there. That was huge, actually, because there was no, like, waiting 
time sitting out with a, a sick baby in a waiting room. So that was that was a, a, a big win. Then we were right into the PICU, which was like you know an, another thing. There were a couple of that the first couple of days were a little rough because there were some oxygen level issues going on, and so there's a lot of up and down. Scary. But then once you get out of there, you know they they move you into kind of like the the more well area, which actually was it was the worst of the experience, oddly enough. Because what um, aspect? I mean, being there or transitioning to it? Just the the, the way the setup was for mm-hmm. us to, to be there. For one, we had basically a bench that we could s- stay on. My wife and I slept on a bench. We had, you know, our we would wedge our bodies so that my feet were wedged up into her mm-hmm. armpit and hers into mine. Yeah. We would like wedge ourselves Pretzels. against yeah. in this little space. That's all we really had to sort of be in. Um, we did have an outdoor, you know, a window of view of of the outside, and we were along the the East River, which was, you know, that that part was at least nice. But just not really having the kind of space that you would be able to spend, you know, four weeks in it was was just, you know, it was just such a rough experience. And then they just didn't have very many areas for us, you know, living in a hospital to just actually be. There was one coffee shop. They had this room that you could, because we were there overnight, they had a room with like two recliners, I think maybe, and a love seat. <laughs> and there were always parents in there trying to sleep, you know. But it was just as stark as like not very nice chairs. Um, in fact, one of them was kind of broken and wobbly the whole time. You couldn't really get yourself comfortable in it. And, the, and there was just the harsh lighting in there. It was like there were so many things for for a place that had – you know, such a reputation, you would think that they would have done a couple of little design details to help out parents going through this this situation, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, what you're describing is, you know, it, it ends up being this workaround for everybody, Yeah. you know? And where do you go and where do you stay? And if the coffee shop is the only thing that's available to you and, and you know, you're up at three in the morning, because yeah. something's going on. We're up at all hours. Right, just, right. Yeah. That's the hospital experience, yeah. right? It's yeah. a full-time 24-7. You know, it's interesting because we've been doing quite a bit of work with um, the Mayo and DMC yeah, yeah. Uh, down in Rochester. And, you know, one of the insights that, you know, that was shared with us is that 70% of the time people are at Mayo they're actually outside of the Mayo walls only about 30% of the time. If they're visiting as a clinic patient, right. are they actually inside the walls of that Yeah, and, place? And, and you're doing some work with the the outside, right, with with, with streets and... Yes, yes, yeah. yeah, and the heart of the city and um, Discovery Walk and some, some new buildings that are going in and also a study that was recently done on... An area I worked with a, a landscape architecture firm, Damon Farber, to do a study on a proposed area for festivals in Rochester, too. So they're really looking at their public realm very, very seriously and earnestly and trying to figure out how to create public spaces that will serve these really unique populations of people who are coming there. Um, even though the, the population of Rochester is about 120,000 people, yeah. I, I could be wrong, but... Um, it's been growing rapidly. Um, they're needing more people to move there and work there. 
And people are coming from other countries to, to get care here, too. Absolutely. So yeah. that's like, but that number is extraordinary. It's like 2.3 million medical that's visitors amazing. per year. So it's kind of like <laughs> the comparison I have is that when we had the Super Bowl here in town, mm-hmm. I think that's what Rochester <laughs> residents feel like all the time, right? They're just sort of inundated with people who don't live there, but who are trying to navigate and kind of live a temporary life in Rochester. Yeah. So really interesting challenge. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you're, if you're in a hospital environment and you don't have those kinds of elements that support you... Um, it, well, first of all, it colors the whole experience. Right, right. right. Your recollection of that, which is one of the dominant parts of what inform our choices as consumers of healthcare, for yeah. example, is our memory of yeah. it. Yeah. So it, it really does. I mean, I think that's yeah. that's a that's a to think about it as coloring your experience is like a, a perfect way of thinking about it. I mean, I I I clearly went through some kind of PTSD from this experience. And a lot of it actually had to do with the environment <laughs> that I was in for that that whole time, yeah. between the you know beeping things and mm-hmm. blinking lights and this you know just the the, the lighting you know I think that that it's one of those things I, I find it I, I think it just be very hard to heal in an environment like that. That's the you know one of the things that, you know for a baby they're not really so aware, especially at twelve days old or you know month old or whatever. They're not so aware of that of that external environment, but you know, for adults who end up in in care for long periods of time, or even a lot of children, I've I know some nurses who work in at children's hospital, and you know, a lot of these we don't think about this that much, but when when kids have illnesses, a lot of times they're in and out of the hospital all the time, and so it becomes a, basically their second home. Is, is there is there something that that you really like to get involved with? Are there any specific details of, of the, this, the experience part of things that are like your real passion? Well, I, I do like it all. You know, I, I really come to this as a designer. So, you know, I'm interested in solving problems for sure. Yeah, you yeah. Know? <laughs> um, but I think my, you know... One of my passions is really understanding what motivates people and how how they can um, be positively influenced to have better experiences. So a lot of times we we use the the phrase that we're you know we're really sort of in business to improve the world one experience at a time. Yeah. It's it's sort of a tall and short order. You know, it's like very <laughs> right, right. very big worldview and then very small. Um, but really uh, and truly, I. I that's that's the goal for me. If things can be just a little bit easier, yeah. or more supportive and caring, it, it is. It's 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 an interesting thing that you can kind of take. Uh, I mean, and and I think I, this is why I wanted to talk to you is because I I think we can we can take a, a an environment and I, and this is one of the ways that I kind of thought about breaking down the the work I wanted to do with the podcast was that. You know, I work with people a lot of times on something that's very physiological, but they live in an environment, whatever that environment is. You know, could be could there, there could be aspects that I I can just you know as I'm as I'm getting a person's story over over a period of time, 
I'm getting a sense of what their childhood environment was like. I get a sense of what their marriages are like, their family dynamics are like, their neighborhoods, all, all these different things. And I have to take a lot of that into consideration when I'm, when I'm treating them. You know, I, I've, I've worked with, you know, kids who've, who have, you know, been in a traumatic family experience or who have seen something on the street and had to, they, they, that really triggered something for them. And now they have an incredible attachment and can't get away from their parent. And so those kinds of things, I have to really understand the environments that, that people have, have been in. And, you know, we can, we can use the environment for, for healing itself, too. Absolutely. And I and I, I I don't think I've given enough <laughs> enough thought to that. So so for for anyone who's like you know thinking about this on a on a personal level, like are there, are there any any things that that you, have you ever worked with you know people like students or you know people in working environments or anything that that they can do to kind of help improve their their immediate experience within their within their place? Well. <clears throat> I just am fresh off of a, taking a Yale online class on well-being, <laughs> and I happen to just teach a class at the University Perfect. of Minnesota on <laughs> human-centered design for well-being. So this is kind of an interesting question for me because um, I I do see both the limits and the potential mm. for space, physical space, to support healing or not. Right, so there's there's both. It's both. So so give us the good side first. <laughs> What's, well, what, what what do you think the potential is? What 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 kinds of things? Um, well, I do think that the process of doing the design work um, really could change and improve. Um, you know the the opportunity to have a better and deeper understanding of users in all cases because that doesn't always happen. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes projects are fast tracked, and there's just not there's not bandwidth, there's not budget um, to really invest in. I'll say an appropriate amount of research, mm-hmm. like actual, not secondary research, but primary. Mm-hmm. You know, into the particular people you're you're trying to do work for. And I do, I do think there you know are lots and lots of design firms and furniture companies that are doing really amazing work into the space. So, I mean, I'm not, I'm not able to um, kind of bring all of those resources, you know, to this conversation. But what I would say is that I think that they, um, you know, Hayworth and Herman Miller and furniture companies that are doing really deep research into well-being in the workplace, for example, um, they have lots and lots of great I'll say more standardized approaches to building spaces that are going to support people in their needs for connection. Um, and but they've been doing it for seventy years or something, right? I mean, that, I mean that's, that's the interesting thing. I, I'm, I'm a bit of a design junkie. This is also oh. why it's fun to talk to you. Yeah. Um, but but I but I love some of that mid-century design because it was it was very driven by space. Mm-hmm. And you know, I mean, sometimes it can go a little too far into that realm. But but I but I you know. There was also kind of an eclecticism that was, you know, with with Herman Miller that was sort of mixed into this in, into the design thing, and that was all about kind of like choosing something that individually kind of gave you a certain kind of feeling too, right? You could have kind of these very minimalist things with with a you know Persian rug or a African mm-hmm. art or you know you know whatever whatever you connect to personally, that you know almost kind of let, lets you kind of create the the feeling for yourself. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, part of what I was learning in this Yale class was proximity of things to you. And whether it's in your workplace or in your home, I mean, help you to make better choices around your well-being. And I mean, it's kind of obvious, but if you have a bowl of fruit versus a bowl of candy, you know, that's really adjacent to your desk or where you sit, (laughs) obviously. (laughs) I mean, again, a lot of this is no brain kind of, you know, but we we make different kinds of choices all the time. And so... I think the the essence of experience design is really turning the design process inside out. So it's saying what what are the individual and larger, I'll say, community needs. Right. And and what would come out of that from a design perspective is the need for the community. Is there a lot of conflict in the community, for mm-hmm, example? Mm-hmm. Um, is there a need for more connection across maybe divisiveness? Um, are there tools that we can bring to bear for that. I've always been really fascinated with this in, intimate scale of design because that is where people sit. You know, yeah. We sit at a table and we talk to, we're, we're doing that right now. Yeah. So chairs and configurations of chairs and the, the placement of them, the 90 degree angle of chairs is yeah. one of the most comfortable ways to talk to someone if, if it happens to be a stranger or even someone that you know well. Mm-hmm. Uh, directly across from someone as we are seated right now is, yeah. is more challenging and more, you know, maybe intimidating for some people. Oh, true. Yeah. So, you know, thinking very carefully about position and how furniture and furnishings um, are selected and positioned and um, color certainly matters. Oh, I mean, yeah. it's huge. I mean, it's one of one of my kind of like, I'll say primary beats with like nursing home environments is that all of the palette used to be, and this is really changing, yeah. thankfully, but... It used to be so muted, and ironically, and eyesight blue. gets really bad when I you're know. older, and you can't discern differences. You need contrast, yes. yeah. similar to how infants need it. You know, oh, black and yeah. white is what infants can see. And over time, when you know our, I suppose, retinas degrade, and yeah, you know, yeah. muscles and all of those things, we're not able to make those kinds of discernments. And ironically, these environments were literally making life worse. Yeah. You know, for people who moved into them at a certain point. They, they say that, that a lot of that a lot of older people fall, they trip over actually things that are not very big, partly because it's it's like, you know, a, a silver, you know, lip at a door that just raised up a quarter of an inch, but they can't see it very well with that with their peripheral. And they and those those are a lot of times the things that they slip up on. Yeah. And and it, and that can happen in our 60s. I mean, it, we don't have to be that old. It's just when the eyes go. Right. <laughs> I'm already I'm starting to kind of get there. So Yeah. That's that's fascinating. Yeah. Okay, so so what what um what, what limitations do you think there are to to this kind of stuff? I mean, there's well, I'm sure I'm sure many, but but in terms of like the thinking about more holistic design things. Yeah. Well, um Really, experience design is people, process, and place. Sometimes it's a product as well. Sometimes it's a virtual experience. Um, so the place is one component in the design of an entire experience, right? Mm-hmm. So you were talking about beeping in the hospital. Oh. You know about sound. You're talking about lights being too bright. Some of these things are environmental, and we can control them. That's true. I, I used to. I used to think <laughs> I had this idea for when I first moved to New York. People would put 
just so much money into these new restaurants. I, Brooklyn was booming at, right a few years after I moved there, early 2000s, and and they would and people would put so much effort into the design of these places, and they'd have really poor lighting and horrible music choices. And I was like, <laughs> or the way the sound moved in the places, like it just it was too hard, or you know, I, I'm a little you know sensitive to that as a musician, but. But I was like amazed that they would put so much money into a project like this and not deal with those those two elements. I thought maybe I should maybe I should get into this. I'm I'm always paying attention to these kinds of things, but uh, that was that might be for another lifetime. Well, or <laughs> just later. You know? Maybe, maybe. I mean, I mean, those kinds of um, environmental scans. You know, the experience awareness that you have, and really, frankly, I think a lot of us do at this point because yeah. we've been, you know, because we're yelping everything, you know, mm-hmm. we're really assessing our experiences. We're very sensitized to them. I, I like to use the analogy that, you know, back when I grew up, a birthday party was a cupcake and now it's like a destination. You know, it's like <laughs> you go to Mexico with your friends and, you know, it's, it's an entire week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, we are very tuned in to the experiences that we're creating for ourselves and that of being curated and created for us. So basically everyone is an experience expert at this point, I feel, you know, um, because so many of them, the barrage of them are coming at us all the time and we're sort of self-selecting into certain things. And, um, you know, it's a huge menu, a huge menu of options. So it it is a competitive advantage, I would say, to really be thoughtful about how and experiences being delivered through the physical environment and, and some of those factors you're talking about. But the other thing is people and process. So these are the things that, you know, if in the design process we're able to understand what some of the processes are and what are not working for that particular um, user group, then we can design a space around a new understanding of what the process should be. Right. So, for example, one of the things in the insights that we had for the children's hospice and respite was that, you know, the kind of overarching goal was to create an environment that felt very homelike for these children. So because they're going to be spending a few days there. Right. And or in this case of people who, you know, children who were actually dying, a dying process for children is very different than it is for adults. And it can be very start stop. Mm -hmm. So they could be there for months. So to your point about creating spaces for the parents and family to come and, and comfortably be and, and stay mm-hmm. is really important. Um, but the check-in process, right? So we have, we have language for this. We have, because, you know, we design spaces to accommodate cues. Um, and we do that in, you know, fast casual restaurants. We do it in banks mm-hmm. and we do it in hospitals yeah. too. So, um, you know, one of the assumptions was there was going to be a, like a front desk and that the first thing that you would do is you would check in with your family. And all it took was just kind of the quick question to say, would you ever check into your home? <laughs> right? Right, right. I mean, no, obviously. That's not a stoppage that you would want to have. So why not provide orientation to a family who's coming to say your, your check-in process is complete. When you come through the door, your room is going to be off to the left. It's going to be the blue sky room with all of the stars on the ceiling. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, please make yourself comfortable. So here's, you know, here's the, the code for the lock. 
um, whatever that might be. So oh, it's creating, cool. you know, thinking about even just the process that gets in, yeah. employed at an Airbnb, for example. Yeah, I yeah. mean, I'm sure you've done a yeah, number of those. Yeah, it's so different from, from place to place. Some people are not present. Some people have surrogates there. Some people say, you know, meet you, and they want to give you way too much information about what you can do <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> from a tourism standpoint. Um and some people are incredibly helpful and, you know, give you the best restaurant tip in your, of your life, you know? Yeah. It's, so, it's, it's interesting because I just went to Iceland. Oh, and, cool. And um, we, we, we did a couple of Airbnbs there that were, that were kind of different culturally. I mean, most of the Airbnbs I've stayed in have been in New York, actually. And for New Yorkers, it's all about mitigating rent. Mm. The, the the bulk yeah. of the bulk of them are honestly okay which is you know and then I've had a just recently I've had a couple of great experiences people that I'm staying re staying with and I'm almost like becoming you know like family to them <laughs> which is also an, a, a thing that can happen but yeah. but the but the but back to the Iceland one it was interesting because they had two very different check in processes but I but I really kind of even though one of them wasn't present. I really felt like the warmth of the way this person kind of like gave me the direction, told me what was there for us. The, the place was just great, and you know, so the what, coffee what, was they, they had stuff set up from? for us. So it was the coffee. And I mean, the it was like or? that. The, it, it was. I think it was the. I think it was set up in the intention too. Like mm -hmm. they clearly wanted us to enjoy our our time there. One one place they were there, and they had a bunch of stuff in the refrigerator for us, like some waters and some soft drinks and. A couple light beers, you know, like, yeah. and these were just for us to enjoy. And they also had like the coffee set up nicely. The other place had had some of the same stuff, but just sort of the way. And that that, that was the second one was they weren't they weren't present, but just everything that kind of came through in the preparation for you know the day before the note that I got. And I don't know those those. It's kind of like what you're talking about about checking. For the, for the for this children's hospice, like the, so that so that when you get there, you feel like you can kind of go slide right into the experience. Right, right. And so those are that's processes. That's an organizational decision, yeah, yeah. and you know, and then there are also decisions about people. Like who is who are the people, the staff, mm, the front facing yeah. staff who yeah. who might be coming into contact with people. I mean. I, you know, I mean, I've got a ton of nightmare stories around this. Like, <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure you hear I'm, everything. I'm a little bit too, um, I'll say, tuned into my experience, my own experience right. too, at this point. Um, but you know, it's interesting. Um, I just heard a story about someone who was sitting at a desk that had been designed to look like a front desk at a check-in location within a government building, and um, but wasn't. The information booth was kind of there for maybe security, I don't know, um, and who actually put up a sign that said, no, not information. <laughs> 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 so, I mean, that happens. And, and that's actually an HR issue, <laughs> right. right? It's like, who do you have sitting in the seat or who is across from a you know, banking customer? Um, you know, but, but in terms of improving our experience, I mean, this is this is one of the things that I, I think about a lot, uh, both in, in relation to the podcast, but also in terms of, you know, dealing when I just in my practice. But it sounds very related to what you're doing because we're whether like if I'm in my practice, if I'm dealing with somebody who's got an ongoing chronic issue that I'm helping them manage, 
it's still about improving that experience as much as I possibly can. You know, we, mm-hmm. we, nothing's ever going to be perfect, just as it's not in, you know, design and, you know, there's always going to be some flaws. But, but, you know, like you can design this beautiful building and have this HR issue <laughs> of not putting the right person at the front desk even, you know, not, not doing the training for this person. And, and all of a sudden, all the rest of the stuff doesn't matter as much. Exactly. I mean, honestly, I mean, it, how you're treated is going to probably, I'll say, impact more greatly, you know, in terms of your experience of a particular place than anything else. So that really is key. It really is key. Um, and, human, know, and human, and human, what, what you what you've been calling human-centered design, right? requires humans mm-hmm. <laughs> to be part of this equation. It does. It does. And, you know, training and empowerment of the humans so that they feel like they can impact people. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go back to this Yale class a little bit because it was just, it's it's been really wonderful. And I, I apparently it's like the most um, popular class for incoming freshmen at Yale. Mm-hmm. And so they turned it into an online class that anyone can take. And it's in well-being. But it really is talking about like all of the things that we can do to influence our experience of something. And I think that that's the other, I'll say next wave is how do we um, provide that kind of information to people in the context of these other experiences, Mm -hmm. you know? So for example, I mean, we all know that meditation is good and getting daily exercise, but you know, did you know that performing an act of kindness is going to make you feel happier. Mm, right. You know, I mean, these are the kinds of things where creating environments for those kinds of things to happen between people naturally. Um, I think that's one of our next challenges is to, to try to figure out how to actually um, create spaces for that, for human connection. And has, has there been a, a project that you've done that, that you feel like, has been magic in some ways, like somehow your your sense of, of of being empathetic to the needs of the of the people coming into this space has really like happened the, the way that you that you planned and researched and everything. Wow, that's a great question. Has it been magic? I mean, I I will say that I will say that Crescent Cove is um, a pretty wonderful example of, you know, and it takes all parties to make this kind of work right, work, right? right? Is, is that the hospice? It's the children's hospice, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think that um, it's because the clients, um, meaning the owner of the project and, and also the families who were going to be using this, were so willing and eager to participate and yeah. share their stories and to... Um, I'm going to say leverage their own experience to en- and enable others to have a better experience. Yeah. So there was a generosity, you know, a human spirit in that yeah. project that was just, I think, felt by everyone, you know, throughout the entire thing. Um, so that that would be one. I think some other projects that I've been involved with, um, I would have liked to have seen a project come to fruition that did not, but I was part of a team that was a finalist for the Sandy Hook Memorial. I, I read that. That's right. Mm-hmm. And that that design, to me, um, had so many, I'm going to say, positive tentacles to it. Yeah. We really brought in 
a lot of the learning that we had and that I have gathered too from the practice of either design for healthcare or research in that space or so it it brought in a perspective around trauma-informed design um and it you know it had some beautiful elements in it too just purely aesthetically um so yeah I mean even though it wasn't chosen I feel like that that was a really strong solution um there, there are other times when I feel like we're making a very small impact in terms of an overall architectural gesture, mm-hmm. but really big from a, an aha yeah, leadership yeah, perspective, yeah, yeah. too. So um, there are some of those that are in the more commercial realm. And, you know, um, I find this work to be generally just really gratifying because there's, a, there's an aspect of kind of people really having to be authentic yeah. about what's going on, um, real I could, conversations. I could see that. I can see why you, you you could probably get interested in just about any any environment. It's true. It's really true. Because you can kind of, you know, I'm sure the, the deeper you go into it too, you can kind of start seeing ahead a little bit, you know, to what's going to make an improvement in this experience. Yeah, yeah. And it was really, it was great to um, engage with students on this too and, help them cultivate projects that were human-centered and really about well-being. And um, I would say that's probably the most recent experience I've had where I was actually designing their experience while they were going through this architectural studio class. And, um, you know, there were parts of it where it was... I did a guided meditation with the students before a critique, you know, Hmm. just to get everybody, like, ready to hear and ready to listen. So there are different kinds of, that's a process, you know, that's, that's something as a part of a larger kind of context of learning something that might increase the possibility that you hear something and I think that's, something. I think that's, I mean, I think even for, even for younger kids, I mean, I, I find sometimes I'm amazed by how, with the kinds of environments that kids can be in and, and be completely unaware of, of what's going on in the environment. And yet if you get them to focus on it, they'll make changes to their environment too, which is also another part. So it, it almost seems like a perfect uh, exercise for the science museum to do something with where kids could sort of have interactive, you know, changing the lighting or opening up a space or... That's a great idea. Because it's, yeah. it's, I, I, I find it's, 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 it's something I try to get when, if we're doing some kind of work in our home in our, in our you know, kids' rooms or something, I, it's, I like to get them involved in like, where do you think this should go? Mm-hmm. I always feel those kinds of things just, and it's and it's surprising. And most of the time, they actually make really good choices. Every once in a while, they make choices based on like, I want everything in my room still, and they don't <laughs> yeah. want to let go of anything. But right. but 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 in terms of like how they want to organize things, I'm, I'm always fascinated by that. You know, I, I'm I'm glad you mentioned that because um, when my son was in kindergarten, I. I asked the teacher of his kindergarten class, this really great teacher, Marshall, I was like, can I do a design project with your, with your class? And he was like, please, you know, come on in. And, um, so we did, um, and I guess this was close to 20 years ago now. Um, we did a rabbit centered design project (laughs) because the class had Uh, a a rabbit. And so these five-year-olds were like, they were fascinated learning what it's like to be a rabbit, you know, 
you can't see right in front of you and your eyes are on the side of your head and that's because you're really your prey, essentially. I mean, they were learning kind of like some natural science around, you know, where they are in the order of things, but also kind of their need for um, enclosure and safety. And so these kids drew up a design and we built, we built the rabbit's apartment um, so great. <laughs> so I believe truly there's no there, it's never too young to bring children into the design process because I think that they have incredible awareness yeah. and um, and and some of that is coming from a natural empathy or compassion. Um, I think that hasn't you know changed or been altered by yeah. other experiences. So it's interesting because I the the work that I've done through my career has been mostly body work based or movement based. And I always feel like, you know, I, I started with body work and, and got into doing more movement work with people. And I always felt like the movement work was really about them becoming more aware of their body in space. And, it, and it's interesting because people from different kinds of backgrounds have a much better uh, or, or less <laughs> of a sense of, of what their body, how it even like mechanically works. I mean, it, there were some writers when I lived in New York, I remember there were a couple different writers that I worked with who they're so like cognitive and they're so, you know, from the, from the neck up that if I had them, if I, if I gave them, and I'm pretty good at giving cues for things, that's part of what I'm doing language-wise is always building cues into the way I'm doing this stuff with people. And I know that they could really understand what I was saying, but they couldn't get their mechanical body to do the thing. And, and over time, you, you start watching them change the way they sort of, you know, are, are aware of their body, are aware of their body in mm -hmm. space, and it, and it changes their whole experience. And that was the thing for me that was like, that, that when, I, when I got that, I, then I, I was all in and, and, you know, what I wanted to do with people. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's funny. Last night I ran into a, an old friend of mine. Um, she and I used to play soccer together. And it was just a joyful thing to yeah. just run into her with her son. And um, she, uh, she said, hey, you did this triathlon. And I said, yeah. I said, are you still playing soccer? Are you doing something? And she said, you know what I do is I get up every morning and I drink some water and I go out and run a mile. It puts me right into my body. And I said, that's so brilliant. Yeah. You know, I think that we are very cognitive and we s sit a lot, you know, in our workplaces. Yeah. Um, I'm a w more aware of how much I'm sitting now that I'm wearing an, you know, an eye watch and, you yeah, know, it's, right, right. you know, getting tracked on those things. But I think... I think it's really, it's so important to just get into our bodies and some of us have a more easy time of it than yeah. others. And, and back to the children, what I was thinking with, with this all was uh, kind of tied all together was that I, I, I'm, I'm pretty aware of how my, my kids, because of the work that I've done, how aware they are in their physical bodies. And, mm -hmm. and, and it's, it's, it's become a part of my work too, as I, I started work, working with newborns. And as my kids have gotten older, I've gotten more comfortable working with other ages. And as my babies that I treated got older and kept treating them, I, I've, you know, I, I kind of get to take them along this, this journey. And it, a lot of it is, is about, again, get, getting their story from them and interacting with that and then tying that into what's going on with their physical selves. So that they so that they have this sense of their physical body in their story a little bit more. Yeah. And kind of getting back to what you were talking about earlier too, about that, you know, this some of these things that we can do to improve experience 
you know, there's there's the design element of this physical part, but the the, the gesture of doing, uh, you know, an act of kindness for someone, how that changes your experience, like today. Mm-hmm. There's such there's such important things to like have an experience with, and, and I think that that should be something that's brought into this conversation of wellness a little bit more, and that's part of the reason why I've brought community elements into the conversation because I think you can be doing everything. You can be eating the right foods, exercising, doing all these things, and still not be well. That that's not those 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 are all, you know, pieces of the puzzle. But the, the, this community aspect and the, and where we where we spend our time and what our experiences in in these spaces is is really the most important part. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think we have um, we have our faces in our phones, you know, so much of the time, yeah. and um, this kind of faux sense of connection um, to people and I've just been really noticing that the more conversations I have with strangers the better I feel mm-hmm. I mean it's yeah. very simple some of these things you know um, so you know we can we can make changes to our own experiences we can design our own experiences for yeah. sure well, it seems like that's what you're doing for every project that you're in right yeah. now. <laughs> yeah. It's so yeah. great. Well, thank Terry. Thank you for taking the time to do this with me. I'm so excited to like finally get to share you with other people, and uh, it's been a real honor. Oh, Jeremy, I really appreciate this. It's been a great conversation, and every time we get together, I just feel like there's more to talk about. Yeah. So, <laughs> so maybe, maybe there'll be a part two. Yeah. Thank right. you. Thank you. Terry Kwan, folks. You know, what really drove this one home for me was thinking about designing for a rabbit. This classroom pet that was seemingly just a cute bunny that has any pet's basic needs, food, water, and basic shelter. If you start thinking about designing a rabbit-centered environment and give more consideration to the physicality of a rabbit, its eyes on the side of its face, its size, its genetic code having long been an animal of prey, who must feel very little sense of safety in its rudimentary indoor home in a classroom. And I I walked away from this conversation looking more closely at my community and giving more thought to whether those around me are having their basic needs met, those foundational elements of Maslow's hierarchy of needs for physical safety and security, which if lacking, affect our ability to love, to grow in esteem, to heal, and to be socially and spiritually engaged. And considering where we are culturally at this moment, this feels particularly important to spend some time examining. Let me know what you thought of this topic in conversation. You can email me at jeremy at highwaytohealthpodcast.com. You can also connect with me at the Highway to Health Podcast website and hit uh, the contact form, and you'll be able to see our entire library of guests there for free as well. And don't forget to visit our Patreon page and learn more about this project and to show your support. Thanks for listening and for all that you do. Be good to yourself. Be kind to each other and take care of your planet. Be well, my friends. If you enjoy podcasts like this, you should check out our author shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Hopeful Hints, hosted by Dr. Tara, guides and supports those on the often challenging and isolating journey of women's health concerns and infertility. 
there's a particularly powerful episode that you should check out called All Things Endometriosis, which dives deep into understanding the condition to help the many women who suffer from endometriosis and have no idea they have it, and healthcare providers who are uneducated about it, making the diagnosis process so difficult. Check out Hopeful Hints on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com.